That is the sound of a de Havilland Beaver, a single-pilot, seven-passenger, piston airplane that is an icon of Canadian aviation. First built in 1947 and often fitted with floats to allow landings on Canada's vast number of lakes and islands, just over 1,600 were built before production ceased in 1967. Now, over 50 years later, and the Beaver is still in frequent use. It's mostly used for short flights, giving access to Canada's remote and unconnected areas. Harrison Ford has won amongst his fleet of 10 private planes and has said it's his favourite one to fly. There are a few small regional airlines in Canada and the US whose fleet is made up mostly of de Havilland Beavers. And now one of those airlines is bringing the Beaver back to the cutting edge of aviation technology. Harbour Air, a small regional airline in British Columbia, Canada, are on a mission to retrofit their entire fleet of Beavers with 100% electric-powered engines, in hopes of becoming the world's first fully zero-carbon airline. And the work they are undertaking has the potential to revolutionise aviation beyond the Beaver. It could change powered flight across the globe. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Rian Owen. And I'm Johnny Dowling. In this week's episode, we're looking at the future of flying and how a regional airline in Western Canada is leading the charge for electric flight. Harbour Air is a regional airline on the south coast of BC that connects the coastal communities. It's got about 40 aircraft, primarily de Havilland Beavers, de Havilland Otters, uh, Twin Otters and a couple of caravans. And we fly short missions between Vancouver Island, Victoria, Nanaimo, Seashelt, really servicing the community here. And we've been doing that for about 40 years. Erica Holtz is the engineering and quality manager for Harbour Air, a small regional airline with flights that last around 30 minutes go no higher than a thousand feet and use a plane that was last produced over 50 years ago is not necessarily where you'd expect to find the cutting edge of aviation innovation. But in the summer of 2022, Harbour Air completed a test flight of a fully electric retrofitted de Havilland Beaver. And now they're on a mission to electrify their entire fleet and become the first zero carbon airline. So our original founder and owner of Harbour Air was Greg McDougall. He owned us um, for up until uh, two years ago. And Greg McDougall was a strong believer in innovation and a strong believer in sustainability. He has had us, uh, all the uh, employees at Harbour Air, consider what we can do to improve our carbon footprint, uh, reduce our carbon footprint, improve our, our impact and just look at any sustainable technologies that could be brought into Harbour Air. He's, I think the uh, we were the first uh, carbon neutral airline and that was done back in, I think, 2010. Since 2010, we've been carbon neutral through a carbon offsets program. And uh, Greg was talking about this uh, as long as six, seven years ago. He was really interested in trying to find a way to electrify the fleet, to reduce the, the carbon emissions from the fleet. He really wanted us to show that this technology could be adopted for aviation and was commercially viable. 
So it was late 2018, beginning of 2019, we found Magniacs. And they were an engine company without an airplane, and we were an airplane company without an engine. So it was a, a very good match. Magniex is a company based in Washington in the northwest of the United States. And Miguel Marmol is their vice president of engineering. So Magniex started, I believe it was in 2005. And it was a, a research and development organization. The founder, Tony Guina, he had a, a passion for electric research, right? So he, you know, Nikola Tesla is one of his, his inspirations. And him and his team spent several years doing like in-depth research on motors and electrics. And one of the big things that they developed was cryogenic motors. And then they also, through the course of thing, came up with a technology that we use today for these extremely lightweight, high power, high torque electric motor. And so around about 2016, 2017, they were figuring out how to pivot the company and Okay, what? How can we commercialize this lightweight motor technology? And you know, they looked at electric buses, they looked at electric uh, watercraft, and looked at aerospace. And they finally, you know, realized that aerospace is a is an industry where weight is a premium, and so the cost is a premium. And they're you know they're a lot more interested in quality rather than than cost. Not to say cost is not a consideration always, but and so then they you know at 2018, which is when I came on, they had already made the pivot to aerospace and they were committed to doing that mission and, and bringing that technology to fruition within the aerospace market. It was around this time that the partnership between MagniX and Harbor Air began. They decided to retrofit the de Havilland Beaver for two reasons. Firstly, because it's an iconic aircraft in Canada, but the second reason was more practical. The secondary part of it is the technology that's available right now and was available in 2019 really lended itself to the smaller aircraft. The smaller aircraft you could work on, the more likely you were going to achieve success. We felt that the, the single otter and the caravan, uh, you'd have effectively have no, you wouldn't have any seats in whichever aircraft you did, but at least you were working on the smaller aircraft that we felt could get to the point where it was commercially viable and we could fit passengers in it, whereas the single otter and the caravan were not as viable at that time. So they took one of their de Havilland beavers, removed its engine, and replaced it with one of Magniex's electric power units. It has a 450-horse Pratt & Whitney Wasp Junior engine. It's called the R985. And so what we did with that was we took off the R985 engine, basically everything firewall forward, all the fuel systems, anything related to the engine system, and then looked to install the Magni 500, which is capable of 500 kilowatts, but we derated it down to 338 kilowatts, which is equivalent to 450 horse, because we didn't want to change uh, the flight or performance characteristics of the aircraft. That wasn't our intent. Our intent was to do a straight up propulsion swap and, and evaluate the novel technology and see how that could work on this uh, airframe. Even though they dialed down the power of the Magni X power system to more closely replicate the Beaver's previous engine, when they began testing, they found the electric engine gave the plane a boost in performance. We got a more, much more significant improvement in performance than we were anticipating. Uh, so there are a couple reasons for that. One is um, the propeller. 
The current propeller on the Beaver is a, is not a very efficient propeller. It hasn't been updated. It's an old propeller from decades ago, so it hasn't been able to take advantage of any of the, the newer technologies and advancements that have been made on propellers. So the propeller itself gave us a 15% improvement in efficiency right off the bat. The Magni X engine is also much lighter than the Pratt and Whitney engine they're replacing in the Beaver. So a, a Pratt and Whitney PT6, which is sort of the engine that we're aiming to replace, the, they have lots of variants, but the, the initial one that's comparable to our motor, that's 750 horsepower or 580 kilowatts. That engine weighs just under 200 kilograms, right? And so our electric engine, we're looking at just over half that, like 120 kilograms or so. And that's from the perspective of how we are with a legacy, that's, a, you know, obviously a big delta and decrease in weight. And the other interesting part is we have just two moving parts, right? It's the rotor, or, or sorry, we have just one moving part, excuse me, two main parts, the stator and the rotor. And this is the rotor that's spinning as opposed to a turbine where you've got, you know, thousands of individual blades that are coming together into the different compressor stages and things like that. That means a traditional engine requires a lot of cooling, which on a Beaver means the design of the nose of the plane is not optimized for aerodynamic performance. The efficiency of these engines is so poor, 80% of the power is actually being rejected in heat. And so you have to cool the engine quite significantly. So there's a lot, most of that frontal area is just allowing air to come in to cool the engine, which also slows down, creates drag on the aircraft. So being able to put a pointy nose on it, we got an, a significant improvement in the aerodynamic performance of the aircraft. Electric engines are about 90% efficient on average, meaning much less of the power is being turned into heat. But we were also able to take the, the cooling amount of cooling required down to a much more small, a much smaller scoop on the front just to blow air over a, a radiator because we do have oil cooling for the engine. But it's a much smaller radiator, um, maybe, I don't know, eight inches by 10 inches as opposed to the radial on the front, which is three feet in diameter. However, there were a few difficulties when it came to installing the first MagniX power unit into a de Havilland Beaver. After all, the Beaver wasn't designed for an electric engine, and the electric engine wasn't even designed for an airplane. It was an interesting process with MagniX when we first met them. They were not an aviation company, and so they were trying to make the engine as absolutely light as possible, which means they didn't drive any accessories off of it. Right, But that became part of the airframer then had to install these accessories and we had to drive them ourselves because they weren't being driven off the engine. So the overall installation became heavier. Retrofitting an old prop plane with a new electrical power system isn't quite the same as a normal engine change. Depending on if it's an engine from the same manufacturer versus not, and the, you know, there's various degrees of complicated there, but generally you change the power plant, you do the verification of the design of the structure, the systems, the fire protection, and then you go out and fly it and verify the performance, right? Either it's the same or better in some way. Here we do the same thing, but in addition, your energy source changes, right? And so now there's the additional work when you do an aircraft retrofit, handling the, the energy source, right? So we have to do the same thing of, if it's a battery retrofit, you know, designing the battery compartment, the installation, 
the protections, the system integration of the battery system with the aircraft and with the engine, or, you know, if it's a hydrogen fuel cell or a generator, the same thing, right? And also then the, uh, in our first iteration we have right now, we have two different cooling systems. So there was a, a strong concern from the power electronics engineers that they wanted us to use a dielectric oil just in case you know you had ingress into any of the components. But we also had a turbine oil system to run the governor because we had a pretty standard propeller setup. So we're actually running two different oil systems on our, our current prototype, which is not very efficient. These are all elements that can be improved upon and made more efficient. And they will be for future prototypes, which will be put forward for certification. But the biggest problem they had was where to put the big heavy batteries. They were built for the NASA X-57 program. So they're massive aluminum blocks with holes drilled in it for the cells. And that was to prevent cell-to-cell -cell propagation of thermal runaway, right? If you had a cell get that hot, the aluminum would quickly uh, dissipate the heat and it wouldn't propagate to the next cell. But it, these were really large, blocky modules. And so when we go to put it into the aircraft, when you're talking about a retrofit, trying to fit them into the existing structure. So you have the fuel bays under the floor that no longer have fuel. So you think you could put a, a you know, quite a bit of battery under there, but because these were in these big fit, this, this big form factor, this, this huge block, we could only fit two in there. So there was a lot of wasted space under the floor. So on our first build, uh, most of the batteries ended up in the cabin just because of the, the bulk and, the, and the, the, the way they were built. So uh, that's something we're changing on our certification version is to go to um, much smaller form of modules that can fit and be distributed through the aircraft more efficiently, both from using up the space perspective and also maintaining our weight and balance, um, our center of gravity, because that's, that's one of the key things with an with a existing aircraft is you're not going to, you do not want to change the weight um, the maximum weight or the center of gravity of the aircraft. So we've got to balance. We've got to be able to put modules up front, modules under the floor, and modules behind the passengers. And that's what we're going to do for the certification version. The Magni X engine has been designed to include plenty of redundancy so that any failure in the system only ever results in a partial loss of power. So there's sort of two main areas. One is in the architecture of the engine itself. So the Magni 650, the, the, the certification version of what we flew in the eBeaver, it has four inverters. So, and then, which is basically, so four devices that take the high voltage DC, turn it into alternating current to drive the motor. And the motor itself is split into four sections inside of the motor so that you could lose one inverter or have a short circuit in one of the motor phases or some other problem like that and the, the engine would still continue running at at least three quarters percent power, right? So then the other part is on the aircraft architecture side, right? So we want to make the design as modular as possible so that it can be installed in various different architectures, but on the aircraft architecture side, if you segregate the high voltage power to the inverters to come from two separate battery banks or separate power distribution. It allows you to, if you have a problem on the battery side, you don't just lose all power, you only have a partial power loss to like that. And then the supply of the, the 28 volts, like the basically the power to the inverter electronics, right? You also do have two sources of power for that, right? So if 
you know, one of your alternators or one of your DC power supplies goes bad, you don't lose the engine and you still have power. And then within the software and the hardware of the inverter, there are protections around, you know, overspeed, over temperature, short circuits, things like that. So we put in a lot of effort to have protections so that if there's a problem, we can handle it in a safe manner for the, for the engine and the airplane. But the modular design also allows the weight of the batteries to spread out across the aircraft to create an optimal balance. So we're trying to use that space as efficiently as possible. And because these modules will be smaller, we'll be able to stack them right next to the firewall up front and that'll help balance it off. Because the, the Beaver aircraft has always been traditionally a rel relatively tail heavy aircraft. So it's always been a bit of a challenge to move everything up front. So we're trying to stack it. Even the ones that go in the back will probably be stacked such that, you know, more in the first row and then sort of fewer as you get further back, trying to keep the weight as, as far forward as possible. The aim for Harbour Air has always been to make the flight characteristics as identical as possible to using a traditional engine, to ensure it's easy for pilots to be trained and adapt to the new power system. But some of the flight characteristics do change. There is absolutely no change in the weight during the course of the flight. That's one of the other things people will have to get used to, in particular as you scale up to bigger aircraft where they take advantage of the fuel burn uh, for load purposes. So um, yes, on a standard aircraft, you know, you're constantly managing your fuel, you're moving your fuel to maintain your, your center of gravity. You understand that you've got a certain amount of fuel burn. Some aircraft even let you take off over gross, knowing that you're going to burn off some fuel. We can't do any of that because the batteries do not change weight through the entire flight. The improved efficiency also makes a few changes for pilots to get used to. So because of the efficiency improvement, the takeoff slides are shorter. The climb out is better, and anybody who's been in a de Havilland Beaver will cheer over that because uh, traditionally climbing in the Beaver has, has been tough, especially at the, the full gross weight, uh, and especially at um, higher altitudes or higher temperatures. But from a performance and flight characteristic standpoint, we don't expect to change a lot of that, except that takeoff and um, climb is improved and the amount of power needed for cruise has been reduced. But it's not intended to change the performance or flight, but we will have to do validation work to prove that we haven't changed it. Even with all the testing and validation work Harbor Air and MagniX have been doing to prove the performance of the engine, getting certification from aviation authorities comes with a lot of difficulties. Retrofitting the Beaver, rather than building a brand new aircraft called clean sheeting, helps simplify the certification process. Why are we uh, retrofitting and not clean sheet aircraft? And that is because uh, when you clean sheet an aircraft, you have to prove and validate everything on the aircraft. You have to prove all the flight characteristics, performance, uh, also loads, strength. There's so much to prove on a, on a new clean sheet aircraft. You would have to have a lot more uh, energy from your people dedicated to that development. Whereas if you retrofit on an existing aircraft that has known behavior, known characteristics, you can focus all your attention solely on the novel aspects of what you're trying to do. So we, we can focus solely on the, the propulsion and the batteries. We don't have to worry about anything else about the aircraft. Is the wing strong enough? Is the tail big enough? We don't have to worry about any of that. We can focus solely on the novel technology. And I think once we've got a path to, to figuring that out, uh, then it's a, an easier jump to put it into a clean sheet aircraft. So if you look at the regulations for FAA certification of aircraft power plants, so part 33, it talks about piston engines and it talks about turbine engines. 
there's nothing in there about any other kind of technology. So we actually work with the FAA to define, we, we work with the FAA to define what are called special conditions. So they basically said, you know, there's no regulations for the technology that you're trying to do. So we're going to create these special regulations to accommodate your power plant design. And then if you show compliance to these special regulations that we wrote, then we will give you a, a type certificate for your engine, right? Harbour Air is working directly with the Canadian Authority, Transport Canada. But ultimately, they're at the forefront of the global discussion between aviation authorities around electrical flying. We work only directly with Transport Canada, but there's a lot of collaboration between the primary civil aviation authorities. So there's a, a group of individuals from Transport Canada, EASA from Europe, uh, the FAA from the United States, and ANAC from Brazil. And they all get together and discuss the major issues that we're going to face for certification. And, and they want to make sure that the authorities are aligned and harmonized on how we're going to move forward with this so that, you know, there's no competitive advantage to doing it with EASA or the FAA, right? So while we only work directly with Transport Canada, uh, we participate in the ASTM groups, which uh, those meetings have members of the FAA, ANAC, EASA and Transport Canada, as well as industry partners. And we discuss our, our entire purpose is to discuss how we change the standards and how we write the rules that are going to be needed to certify this product. The other problem with gaining certification is more efficiencies in design are always being made and the technology is constantly improving. We have to lock in at some point for the prototype build purposes and for certification purposes. So I have to pick an architecture and we go with it. And by the time we get to certification, it's going to be two years outdated and there'll be a lot better technology out on the market at that time. But we can't take advantage of it until we actually get something certified, create the path to certification. And then once we're done, we can do another iteration to, to incorporate that new technology. So that's a, a frustration to see all this new technology coming out that you can't quite take advantage of because it can take 26 to 52 weeks lead time to, to purchase some of these components, right? And then to get to certification, we're, we're, we're two years out. So we have to lock in architecture now. And that's, that's um, a tough one to do at this point. The time, effort and cost for Harbour Air to go through the years-long process trying to turn their entire fleet electric and become the first zero-carbon airline is very high. The cost and risk involved is why there aren't more airlines trying to do this. But if Harbour Air is successful, they could see the cost of operating their fleet dramatically reduced. So our capital expenditures are still really quite high in that in that arena. But the expectation is once you get over the high capital cost, there will be a lower maintenance cost. We spend a lot of man hours, every 100 hour inspection in particular, uh, inspecting all the engine components. And none of that will be necessary anymore. The the hundred hour inspection will be we be much less. In fact, I think I've seen them project we don't even need a hundred hour. We'll call it a three hundred hour, right? So you'll have less frequent inspections, and there'll be less intensive inspections. When it comes to the um, the overhaul or retirement of the engine components, that's an area that I think is still under discussion with the the OEMs. So people like Magniex, they're running the engine on their test cells. They're trying to run it for thousands of hours to try and figure out where does component retirement have to happen? Where does where are the overhaul um, areas? And that's, that's something that's in investigation right now. I don't know that they have enough time on their test cell yet to give us a definitive answer, but it is expected to be uh, a longer interval to overhaul than uh, a standard turbine. 
with fewer parts retired is our expectation. So yes, a high upfront cost with an expectation of a, of a lower operating cost. Also, the fuel costs will be much lower. An hour of flying costs over $100 in fuel, whereas in British Columbia, electricity, 98% of which is generated through renewables, costs between 7 and 12 cents per kilowatt hour. But right now, the charging infrastructure simply doesn't exist. It's very difficult. So when we did our recent tour and took the aircraft to Salt Spring and to Victoria, we had to call ahead and ask what uh, power was available. Not much. We had to wire in our own 220 outlets with 40 amp service because they didn't even have that. And then we carried our seven kilowatt charger with us. So away from base, it's going to be dictated by what power is available at the locations. So right now, not much. Uh, it took us 16 hours to charge when we were away from base at these locations. Here, currently with our 75 kilowatt charger, we can charge in about three to four hours. By the time we get to certification, we are having some 150 kilowatt chargers installed at our two of our locations. And that should get us down to charge that sort of one for one. So for every, for if we fly for 20 minutes, we should be, to be able to charge in about 20 minutes, given the size of our pack and, and the, the 150 kilowatt uh, charger. Since our pack is around 150 kilowatts and we have a 150 kilowatt charger, it's kind of one to one. And while that charging infrastructure doesn't exist right now, it's something Harbour Air are planning to invest heavily in. We're looking at things also like uh, installing microgrids at any of our locations so that we can, can charge the microgrids overnight when it's cheap, cheaper rates uh, and then use that to fast charge the aircraft in the day. So that's something that when we also look at the life cycle of some of the batteries, when they cycle out of the aircraft because um, they're no longer useful for, for the airplane, but they still have life in them, we could use those as a microgrid to store energy to help charge the aircraft on the ground and take advantage of the cheaper rates or slower trickle charges. At first, it may seem surprising that a small regional airline is on the cutting edge of electric flight. But electric engines come with some major range limitations. But those limitations don't impact on Harbour Air's flights. The range on those is, you know, 80 nautical miles or so. And so, for people like Harbor Air, whose missions are almost all less than 50 nautical miles, it, it suits, right? And so we can start the transition of energy from decarbonization in those markets with the technology we have today, right? But that limitation doesn't mean that work being done by Harbor Air and MagniX can't have a major impact on the entire aviation industry. What looks most promising right now is a hybrid light hybridization right so having an electric motor that's attached to the turbine is through the gearbox and either you know the the engine is designed for operating at 75 percent power for cruise and climb and then that extra 25 or 30 percent is provided by the electric motor for takeoff and go around and things of that nature and then the energy for that motor comes from something like a hydrogen fuel cell or a smaller battery bank, right? Because jet engines down low burn a prodigious amount of fuel and at high power burn a prodigious amount of fuel, which is right takeoff, right? And so just by eliminating the fuel burn during takeoff and climb or reducing it, you actually reduce, uh, you know, 
it starts to become less of a portion of the overall fuel burn of the aircraft on longer missions. For bigger planes going on longer flights, full-scale electrification isn't likely anytime soon. But using electric power could reduce the amount of fuel used, and research and investment will continue into different ways of decarbonizing aviation, like sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen fuel cells. All of these solutions are needed and it requires support and collaboration across the whole industry, from governments to airlines, to airports, and even the passengers. Making sure that there's public interest in what we're doing, which helps drive government interest. Uh, so that, that means, um, you know, we recently got a, an announcement from the Paris Air Show about an extra $350 million dedicated towards the development of these technologies in Canada. Uh, I think that a lot of that is a result of the, the public interest. So I think uh, one thing that's interesting is to make sure people understand that they have a voice. And if they want to see this technology succeed, they need to tell people, tell their, their elected officials, tell anybody that's interested. And also accept, though, that these technologies are not cheaper than standard technologies, right? So in order to, to develop sustainable technologies, there's a cost associated. And uh, people need to show that they're interested in it and, and willing to get on board with it. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, with co-hosting by Rian Owen, editing and series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our own electrical drivetrain is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>